Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and joining us today on The Stacks is the legendary author, Jasmine Ward. We have covered some of Jasmine's past work on this very show, but today we get to discuss with Jasmine her brand new novel, Let Us Descend, which is also an Oprah Winfrey book club pick. The book is a reimagining of American slavery told through the story of one girl. It's a beautifully written, heartbreaking, magical realism tale of grief and survival. Jasmine is a two-time National Book Award winner, as well as a MacArthur Fellow and the youngest winner of the Library of Congress Prize for Fiction. We talked today about how this story came to her, how writing Let Us Descend differed from her previous projects, and how she writes through the pressure of past recognition and accolades. There are no spoilers on today's episode. Remember, our November book club pick is Severance by Ling Ma. We will discuss that book on Wednesday, November 29th with Mitchell Jackson. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And if you haven't yet, please take a moment to leave The Stacks a reading and a review on Apple Podcasts. We are trying to get to 2,000 reviews. We're so close. So please, please, please take a moment to leave us that review. Also, if you love this show, join the Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash the Stacks. If you didn't know, the Stacks is a Black woman created and run independent podcast all about books. I love that I get to make this show independently without the oversight of a network. And it means I get to make a show that I love and that I'm proud of every week and that covers the topics that I think should be getting more coverage in the book world. It also means that I have to rely on listeners like you to help make the show every single week. And by joining the Stacks Pack, you get to know that your $5 a month goes to keeping the lights on around here, but also you get perks for yourself like our monthly virtual book club, our bonus episodes, our very active Discord community, and you get to weigh in on decisions around book club merch and so much more. So if you like this show, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Annalise Adams and Chernell. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Jasmine Ward. All right, everybody. This episode today is thrilling for me. I am so excited to welcome novelist, memoirist, Great American writer, Jasmine Ward, to the Stacks. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you for having me. It's good to 
be here virtually. <laughs> it's good to be here. Yes. I I told you this just now, but I'm just going to say it to people at home because I think I just need to get out in the open. I have never been as nervous for an interview as I am to talk to you because you are a brilliant writer and you're so smart. And I feel like there's so much depth and layers to this book, uh, Let Us Descend, that I'm like, nervous that I'm going to sound like an idiot. because I'm like, I don't know. She's so smart. So I'm just putting that out there and I'm inviting you to make me look good. Okay. <laughs> In about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell folks about Let Us Descend? Uh, I can try. That's always, I feel like one try. of the hardest questions that people ask me when they say, yeah. you know, can you tell us about your book in like two sentences? Um, so <laughs> Let Us Descend follows an enslaved, a young enslaved woman um, as she is sold south, like from the Carolinas down to New Orleans and basically marched to the slave pens of New Orleans, um, where she is then uh, sold and then uh, is bought to a, a sugarcane plantation. Um, so that's like the bare bones of what happens in Let Us yeah. Descend, but that's not all that happens in Let Us Descend because along the way, as she makes this descent into this hellish landscape, at the same time, she sort of, I don't know, like pierces the veil between worlds and she, um, is introduced to like the world of spirit that um, mm. that is all around us and all around her. Uh, yeah, yeah, you did good. Okay, that was good. Thank you. <laughs> we have we have the rest of this interview to talk about the book in detail. Okay. I just like to give folks a sense of it because when they listen, the book will have just come out. So mm-hmm. A lot of people maybe haven't read it yet. I want to know why you wanted to write a slave narrative. Why that was interesting or exciting to you? Right. Um. So. What happened? I, you know, it's it's unlike anything else that I've ever written. You know, I'm I'm most mm-hmm. of my f- fictional work and my creative nonfiction work is like firmly rooted in the present, sort of, and and mm-hmm. references the past, but is mostly rooted in the present. But so I was so around seven years ago, I was pregnant with my son, my my second child, and. I I work in I teach at uh, Tulane in New Orleans, right? And so I have a bit of a commute. It takes me around. I live because I live in my hometown of Mississippi, so it takes me around an hour and a, and thirty oh. minutes to get into New Orleans. And so back then, <sighs> this is in two thousand fifteen. I was listening to a lot of um, NPR. I would listen to NPR on my way to work. I hadn't discovered podcasts yet. I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts mostly, but I was listening to NPR and it just so happened that 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 year was the celebration of like the 300th sort of like year of New Orleans history. And so as part of that celebration, the local NPR station out of New Orleans called WWNO was um, was actually producing producing this show called Tripod, um, which is all, at that time was all about like little known aspects of New Orleans history mm. or hi- the history of the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so like one day I heard a show about they were doing a show about like bullfighting in New Orleans. Right. And then it just so happened that on the on this particular day that I and I was on my listening on my morning commute, that they were doing a show specifically about the domestic slave trade and slave pens in New Orleans. 
And mm. I, I mean, I knew that that was part of the history of the city, right? But like, so my dad has siblings who were born in New Orleans and who lived in New Orleans their whole lives. When I was a teenager, my dad actually moved over to New Orleans. And so when we would go visit him, we would, you know, stay with him in different neighborhoods, um, you know, in and around New Orleans. Like he lived, he had an apartment out in Jefferson. So I felt like I, I wasn't totally familiar with the city, but I felt like that was my city, you know, that I grew up with. Right, um, right. Or grew up in, partly. And so it was very shocking to me that I knew nothing of slave pens. Mm. I didn't even, I didn't know that there were dozens throughout the city. I didn't know that they were actually called slave pens. I didn't know, you know, like just how horrible and brutal they were. And then I was like particularly shocked when the historian that the journalist was interviewing said, and, and again, this is around seven, eight years ago, the historian said that back then that there were only two markers in the city of New Orleans where there were slave pens, where slave pens had been, and one of them was in the wrong location. And, and wow. that, I think, beyond anything, just really horrified me um, because I was like suddenly aware of how you know, of how enslaved people had suffered so much, you know, and particularly in that place, in that location, and that all that suffering, that pain that they'd gone through at that moment in their lives had been erased, like erased from the landscape, erased from our collective memory. And that seemed very, very wrong. And so I remember tearing up a little bit, you know, as I, when I heard that and I was like, but wait, no, 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 no what if I write about it? Like, what if I do my little part, you know, and write about mm -hmm. it and try to bring it back into our, like, collective consciousness? What if I do that? And and from that first moment that I thought this is something that I could write about, I knew I wanted to write about a woman. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but I just knew that I wanted to write about a woman. So that is where Annis's story began. Okay. I, I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> First of all, I guess, is that how these things happen for you? Like, you just know, you just know, like, I'm going to write about a woman, or you just know this is the next story? Or or do you have these moments of, like, other NPR stories or other inspiration that you want to write about, and mm -hmm. just some of them just stick? Mm, no. I mean, generally, when I get an idea for a book, there's something about the need to write that story or that urge to write that story that settles me on it from the very beginning, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I don't immediately know everything about the character or even the world that, I, that I'm writing about, but mm -hmm. I do know that I want to follow this particular person. So like with Salvage the Bones, the 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 idea that that or the person that that started me on the journey of like writing that book the seed for that book that was um that was Esh from the very beginning right i was like what Got i wonder it. what wonder what it would be, would be like for this girl who's grown up in a world full of men right and then the hurricane came sort of immediately after that but the hurricane came after that you know 
Um, Got it. With Sing Unburied Sing, I wanted to write, JoJo came to me first. I was like, oh, I wonder what it would be like. And, and you know, and I, often I get these ideas when I'm driving or when I'm doing something. I often get my ideas <laughs> while I'm driving, which is sort of weird okay. to say. Um, but when when a character comes to me like that, it's always like yeah. I'm in this like weird, not meditative space, but like this weird space where I'm semi-concentrating on doing something manually and my mind yeah. is free to just sort of cast about, I guess, for ideas yeah. or, yeah. I don't know, just sort of think. That makes sense. I get mine when I'm taking a shower. Got it. It's always in the shower where I'm like, where like a question for an interview will come to me. I, mm-hmm. I, it's like, I'm, I'm, it's something that I'm always thinking about. Like, mm-hmm. how do I want to talk to this person about this right. thing? But a lot of times when I sit down at my desk to do it, mm-hmm. the questions are like, how did you do this? And then I take a shower <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, here are the good stuff. Right. So I totally get that. Cause it's like, you're occupied with something else, but right. your brain is still working and like floating, right. but you're not like, I feel like sometimes when I try to focus, I can't focus. Right. Um, another thing you mentioned uh, in that earlier answer was about, you know, doing your part mm-hmm. to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And how do you think about audience? Who is your audience? Does it change for you book to book? Or or do you have a sense of who you're writing for always? Mm-hmm. I don't think it changes from book to book. I think... That from the beginning of my writing life, really, like I've always been aware that at the same time that I'm writing for the people I love and the people that I come from, you know, like like at the same time that I'm writing for like my family, my extended family, my community, you know, Mississippi Southerners, right? At the same time that I'm writing for them slash us, I was also aware that hopefully, you know, like fingers crossed that people outside of my community and my family and extended family would also encounter my work. So I was always aware that I was writing for an other, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I I tend to think about audience more when I'm revising. Um, just Just because of issues of like, just because I'm, you know, always concerned with issues of clarity, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, am I giving the reader enough? Uh, am I giving them too much? Do I need to, you know, add more, take away? Do I need to develop things, right? Clarify. But when I'm drafting, I try not to think about audience. And I just, I, I re- yeah, I really try not to think about, about audience. For me, you know, writing that rough draft and doing like the the sort of large level like the the earlier revisions where i'm very concerned with like structure and you know like big right. issues i'm definitely not trying to think about audience then i'm just trying to like immerse myself sort of in yeah. the, in the story and then when you do start to think about audience and you are thinking about clarity and like if you've given us enough and all of that stuff is that something like how do you figure that out? How do you know if you have? Is there some? Is there something that like it makes sense to you? Or is that when you then lean on like your editor, like Kathy Belden, right. my, my editor hero? <laughs> like how much of it is like outside handing a section over to someone versus you being like, you know what, this is the fix. Right. So I, um, 
you know, after I complete a rough draft, I just let it sit for like a month. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I come back to it. I read it all the way through. And while I'm reading it, I am writing down things that I notice, you know, Mm -hmm. things that I need to work on in revision. Right. And normally I get I had there maybe at least 10, if not more. And 10 is probably on the low end, but at least okay. 10 big things that I have to do in or in revision. And so then what I do is I then go back to the beginning of the book and then I just concentrate on like the first thing on the list the whole mm. way through the book. So that's one Got revision. It. I cross that off and then I go to the second <laughs> thing and that's the second revision. So I revise as much as I can over and over and over again until I can ma- until I make my way through that list. And normally what I do at that point is I then beg my friends who are writers to look at it. And so then I'll send them, you know, send it to them and they'll take two months, three months with it. Look at it. Send me, you know, comments um, back about like what's working and what I can what I can work. And so then. I, you know, read all their comments and like synthesize that and then come up with another list, right? Based on their comments. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go through and do multiple revi- multiple revisions based on that. And so normally after I do that, that's when I'll finally bring it to Kathy, right? Because I feel like I've done all the work that I can do to it at that, you know, right. at that time, right? To get it, <laughs> to get it together and to not embarrass myself when I send it to her. Um, and then she takes, you know, three months with it and then she gets back to me and then th- that's the big revision. And for every book except Salvage the Bones, that that big revision, like that that one, mm-hmm. which is like the first of the revisions that I'll do with her, that one is always like really, it, it requires a lot of work. Um, but she's a great editor. And so I am grateful for it because I know that she's, helping me to, you know, transform the book uh, and to get it closer, I think, to this vision that I have of it inside of my head, right? Mm -hmm. But funny enough, with Let Us Descend, it didn't happen that way. And I think the reason that it didn't, that I did not, my process did not remain the same is because this book took me longer to write, like, than any book that I've written, Mm. right? So before I even set one word down on the page, I like read for two years um, and researched because I I knew nothing about American chattel slavery. I knew nothing. Um, And so I read for two years and I would have continued to like read and not write. Um, But then (laughs) after reading for two years, I got to this point where where I realized my, you know, because I was in contract for this book. And I was like, oh, right. no, my, my, my submission date <laughs> is coming up soon and I have nothing. And so I was like, well, you know, like, I understand that I will have to continue to research as I write, but I have to start writing. I have to get something down right. on the page. So I started and that was really difficult. And I wrote like bad beginning after bad beginning. And then, you know, like, as you know, because I've written about it, um, three years ago, my partner died, you know, and that silenced me for a while. Right. And I Mm -hmm. and I there was there was a moment where I thought maybe I'm not going to finish this book. Like maybe I'm Mm -hmm. done. Like maybe I've written all the books that I'm ever going to write. 
And um, and so I sat with that. And, and this was in 2020. And so I sat with that for a while. You know, he, my he died at the beginning of, in January of 2020, you know, at the very beginning of the year. And so, you know, this is somewhere around, I don't know, May that I was feeling that way because I hadn't written, you know, since he since he right. passed away. And so. But I was like sitting with that, like in the in the at the beginning of the summer, during the summer. But then I I just felt very strongly that. And I feel like this was him letting me know, too. Right. Like it was a combination of what I knew about him and him also communicating with me that that is the last thing that he would want his loss yeah. to do to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the last way that he would want, you know, like his leaving to affect me. He would, he wouldn't want, he wouldn't want my grief that I felt for, for him to silence me. And so I thought, okay, well then I got, I have to get, I have to do this. Um, and yeah. so then I dove back into the writing of it, of the novel. And in a way it was almost like starting all over again. Um, hmm. And so I, I picked up where I had stopped, where I had stalled out. I st- had stalled out at like chapter three or something. And then I, I wrote all the way through to the end. And, mm-hmm. and then I did, I, you know, I made my list and did multiple, mm-hmm. multiple, multiple, multiple revisions. And then I looked up and it was like, it had been like six years since I started, you know, <laughs> like the book. Right? right. And, 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 and I was debating like getting it to my friends but it was around like April, I think, of 2022. And then I was just like, you know what? You know, like if I get it to my friends now, they're going to have it for the right. summer. They're going to get back to me with, you know, with with revisions, you know, the things that I can think about in revision in the fall. Then that's going to take me throughout the whole, it's going to take me the whole fall, right? To go through revision after revision after revision. And I just sort of want to not like... I just felt like I'd been sitting with it for so long yeah. that I just needed to send it to Kathy, you know? And I, mm. and I told her when I sent it to her, I was like, you know, it's not normally where my manuscripts are at this point because I haven't had that extra round of revision with, you know, with like multiple, my first, my group of first readers, like giving me feedback. Right. Um, so I sent it to her and, uh, and <laughs> that first revision, oh Lord, uh, it, it was rough. It was really rough. It required me to rewrite like the first three chapters. Um, and I'd never had to do that before. Uh, but it was, but, but, you know, Kathy is Kathy. Kathy is, you know, not only is she one of my best friends, but she's also the best editor for me, you know, like she's the best editor I've ever. She, she's I love the best her. editor. I love period. her. She's a dream, right? And so she, so <laughs> uh, you know, all of her, you know, questions and suggestions, suggestions for revision, they were spot on, right? I, and I mm. and I and I understood that, and so I just I knew, like at that point, okay, I just I have to put in the work on my end, right, to like really sit mm-hmm. with sit with her, you know, sit with what she's telling me, and and just work through it you know, and be ruthless in a way, I think, clear-eyed and ruthless in a way. Um, but it, and, and so I did, on my end, I put in the work um, and it transformed the book. It really did. Okay, this is a sort of nosy question and mm-hmm. you can just tell me no, but mm-hmm. um, who are the people that are your friends in the first group of readers? 
so they're mostly people who I went to school with. Um, okay. So like some of the people that I went to school with at, at Michigan, when I was, went to the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. I was in the MFA program there. So uh, two people, two different people that were in my class, Elizabeth Sout and Natalie Bacopoulos. And then the rest of the, I have a few other folks I sent who I send my work to and they were in and I was a Stegner fellow with them. So Stephanie Swallow, Sarah Frisch, uh, one of my friends, Amy Keller. She I usually send um, my work to her, too. And she also gives me feedback Um, this round when I was thinking about sending it to my first group of readers before I decided not to. I was actually going to ask and. Regina is probably going to, you know, my cousin is probably going to be angry with me, but I was going to send, I was going to ask Regina Bradley, who I love and who I've become really close with. I was going to ask her to read the first draft. Um, I also have another friend, Christian Kiefer, um, who I've become friends with. And so I was going to ask him to perhaps read an early draft of it. So it's just a combination. I'm just always yeah. so nosy to know which writers are friends <laughs> yeah. with who and who, who's yeah. where. Like, I love acknowledgements because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I get to see who knows who. <laughs> right. Um, okay, let's take a quick break and mm-hmm. we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. And we haven't really talked about the book at all because I just like got excited to ask you process questions, uh-huh. which usually I do later. But yeah. I do want to ask you about the relationship of this book to Dante's Inferno. I know mm-hmm. that it comes up really early in the book. Um, I have, you know, the the ARC copy where I think in the note, maybe Kathy mentions mm-hmm. it or something. So I sort of was thinking about Dante's Inferno as I was reading the book because I was told to think about it. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, you know, And and that's where the title comes from. It Mm -hmm. comes from this scene really early on where Mm -hmm. this tutor is talking about Dante's Inferno. So I'm Mm -hmm. just wondering like how that played into your thinking about the book, why Dante's Inferno, Mm -hmm. just any insight to that sort of piece of this story. Yeah. So I read, I read Dante's Inferno. Actually, I never read it in school, you know, when I was in high school, not in undergrad, not in grad not in grad school. I actually read Dante's Inferno on the advice of one of my friends. Um, He's a journalist now. His name is Daniel Burke. And I read, you know, we, we were like young 20 somethings working in publishing in New York city. And he just asked me if I'd read it one day. And I was like, (laughs) Oh, I've never read it. And he suggested that I read it. Um, and, And so I read it and I can't remember. I think we may have talked about it a little bit, but it, I think the the poetry of it stuck with me and the power of the imagery st- stuck with me, even though I didn't revisit it, you know, like for years and years. And so right. when I was thinking about Annis and thinking about her journey, um, because somewhere in those two years of reading, I had discovered um, you know, the fact that New Orleans was like the capital of the American, you know, of the domestic slave trade, right? Once right. transatlantic slavery was 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 uh banned, right? Like New Orleans became the capital of the of the American slave trade. And that at that time, for various reasons, right, so many enslaved people were being transported south to the slave markets of New Orleans and then sold in the slave markets to work in the lower South, right? In plantations in the lower, lower South, right? Cotton, mainly cotton and sugarcane, right? Um, and so I, and I remember being like, not really knowing how, like how she was going to end up in the slave pens of New Orleans. But then once I read about the Georgia, about Georgia men and about the fact that at one time people from the upper South were like, marched (laughs) south Mm -hmm. to New Orleans, I was just so taken aback at how arduous that journey must have been, how it might have resembled a descent into hell, right? Especially because, Mm -hmm. you know, just like temperature-wise, weather-wise, the fact that you're walking south and that the walk, I mean, you're walking hundreds of miles, right? Right to these slave pens, it just, it immediately called, like, called to mind a descent into hell. And then 
the inferno like popped into my head and and mm. I thought what if you know like what if Annis's journey you know because this is something of a descent into hell like what if it could reflect the inferno or, or what if the inferno could like inform her descent into this hell in a way right and you know and I started thinking about like you know the fact that she was the daughter of this plantation owner and you know what if his children had a tutor and so and because I was like trying to figure out ways that I could I was trying to open myself to the reality right and to the fact that you know that she has a complex inner life, right? And so I was asking myself, okay, so what is that? What is that complex inner life? Like what adds to that complexity? What aspects of her personality, what are going to be the aspects of her personality? You know, because I recognize like the need for her to be a fully sort of realized, rendered, you know, complicated person, right? And I think that, that that can be a danger sometimes, I think, especially when we're writing about enslaved people. I think because we're all we're always, I don't know, I think that that their experiences have been sort of flattened and in our yeah. in our ideas about them. I don't know. Like mm-hmm. they've been reduced. And so my part of my job, I feel like in, in my in my responsibility in telling her story was to complicate her and to make you know and to render her as like vividly as I could on the page and so that's one of the things that I sort of that sparked for me right this idea that she would that you know in part because her mother is a storyteller she loves language she loves Mm. stories right and so Mm -hmm. she she, so you know eavesdropping on her you know that her her siblings tutor right um that that would feed something in her, right? This is her way of like, of getting, of of sort of filching beauty for herself, right? And so, I don't know. And I, so I sort of sort of worked for, from there and I pulled the Inferno off of the shelf and I, I didn't read the entire, I didn't reread the entire book again, okay. but I just sort of, I read parts of it, you know, as I was sort of searching for ways that I could like incorporate um, incorporate the inferno in into her experience and into her sort of understanding of I, because I wanted it to inform her understanding of what she was enduring, right? In the way that yeah. I think literature informs all of our understanding of of our lives, right, and and helps us navigate yeah. our lives. And so I wanted that book to be that to operate in that way for her too. Yeah, something that I have always really loved about your work. And it's sort of hard to articulate, but I'm going to try, mm-hmm. is that there's something about the way that you sort of take human emotion and like distill it down to the core and then sort of like spin your stories out of that. And I know that, again, is like very heady and weird, but that's what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. When I read your work, I feel like I'm reading someone, you know, who's lived a life and taken their experiences and taken the world as they see it and like sort of purified those emotions or those experiences and then created fiction or nonfiction from that. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, how you think about bringing emotion or like, like this book is so much about grief, right? right? And like, 
there's other other books that you've written are you know about about like maybe fear or anxiety like i think mm-hmm. that that's so heavy in in sing unburied sing that mm-hmm. sort of like unknown feeling and so i'm wondering how you think about feelings i don't even know if this is a question but when i finish your books i'm always like how did she make grief feel like that mm-hmm. as a, for a reader mm-hmm. no i think that it does make sense i i you know i I think that in, so in, you know, I've been in a lot of writing workshops. And so I think that one of the things that, let me see. So this is going to be a long winded answer and I'm sorry. I'll apologize for that in advance. Um, It's okay. I could listen to you talk about anything. So just have, go off. Okay. So when I, so when, I think when I first began writing or trying, attempting to write short stories, when I was in, in college, that, you know, I was writing really unsuccessful short stories, short stories that were more like extended scenes because I I had no idea how to plot anything, right? Mm. Or how to structure or what plot meant or and how to do it or how to structure stories. So really they were like, yeah, just my short stories were like extended scenes. And what I realized, I think like dimly realized when I was writing them, that part of what I was trying to do was I was trying to capture an emotion, you know, like mm-hmm. I was trying to capture a character's, like the emotions that th- that a specific character was feeling at a specific moment in time as they are, mm-hmm. you know, living through something, right? Like that was what was drawing me to the moments that went to the people that I was attempting to write about, right? And and so then all my years in workshop, workshop after workshop after workshop, I think uh, I think taught me first taught me to be aware that that was what I was trying to do, right? That that right. I was really like invested in writing about people's experience ex- like experiences and right and and their emotions and what they were feeling in the, in these moments where they're dealing with like you know, I, I I recall like one of the first serious short stories I wrote was about a, a teenager on his way to the hospital. His girlfriend was given birth and he's like driving over the bayou. Right. And, mm. and like I said, it was just a scene. Right. I mean, really. But what I was interested in was like how this person would be processing birth. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is a, sort of a universal like experience, right? right? right. Um, and I was just, I was re- very interested in how he would be feeling in that moment. And so anyhow, I think all those years of workshop really taught me um, to think really seriously about character, to sit with the character, to be aware that emotions are complicated, characters are complicated, and that also that, like, I may be writing about a character in a certain moment, but that character is bringing everything that has occurred in their life before that moment to that moment. They're bringing their own way of, like, thinking about everything that has happened before in their life in that moment. They're bringing their own particular references to that moment, their own particular, like, allusions to that moment. 
you know, the ways that they think about like family and love and friendship and all those things, like they're bringing all of that to that to that moment. And so as a writer, like I have to be aware of all of those things in order to understand and I think uh, fully render them as like complex people in that moment. I have to be aware of of all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, I think that often the big things that my characters are struggling with as far as like their emotions are concerned like those are things that I'm actually obsessing over or struggling with at that time you know and that Mm. and that it Mm -hmm. finds its way into my work and into my understanding of the characters in a way probably because you know whatever I'm obsessing over like that's what's bringing me to this moment in this right. character anyway, right? So like, right. so with Salvage the Bones, d- when I was working on Salvage the Bones, I was, um, you know, I had just lived through Hurricane Katrina. I was very aware of how, of death, <laughs> right? Of loss, right. Of, of how a natural disaster um, could come in at any time and like, uh, you know, and, 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 take away the landscape that you love and the people that you love. Right. And, and so I, and I think I was thinking a lot at that time about like asking myself, so what do you do with that? Right. Like, what do you do with this, with this knowledge? Right. What do you do with this, you know, this fear that you're, that you're feeling and this fear like twinned with love for this place that you're always in danger of losing. Right. Like, what do you do Mm -hmm. with that? And so I think that the characters, while they may not explicitly say that, I think that, you know, they're wrestling with that in their teenage, in you know, as teenagers, yeah. in some way, yeah. in Salvage the Bones. With Sing and Bird Sing, I had moved back home. And so I think that at that time, like, you know, as fighting this fight with myself or having the, the, this fight with myself, is going to sound weird, that I've had my entire life, right, where... On one hand, I love this place very, very much. And on the other hand, I can really despise this <laughs> this place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I was wrestling with that and like what it m- means to live and work and like live and work and love here with the weight of the history of this place, right? right. Um, and then also at the same time, to do all that with, you know, to do all that and recognize that this is the modern South, this is the new South. And so what does that mean? Right. And and so, and so, you know, like I was bringing, you know, those emotions to sing and buried sing and it found its way into, into those characters too, because they're sort of wrestling with the same things, but in just different situations. And then with, right with Let Us Descend, right? Of course, it was my grief. It was my grief that really brought me back to the work, right? Um, Right. You know, the love I felt or that I feel, you know, like for my partner, the realization that he would want me to use my voice. And and I think that part of what I was like working through on the page is like, as I was trying to figure out what my life would be without his physical presence, right? Right my characters in some way are dealing with the same thing. Like that's the under that I think 
really thinking about grief and thinking about loss and like working through, struggling through my own grief, which I still struggle with, right? And my own loss. For me, it was the key to to beginning to understand Annis and the world that she lived in and what she carried, you know, like throughout her days, right? And I mean, it just, it made sense to me because I felt like, you know, if there was one thing that our, you know, ancestors struggled with and one thing that they all knew, it was definitely grief. It was definitely loss. It was definitely, right? you know, losing people that they loved in in various ways, right? Death and being mm-hmm. sold away from each other and families being split up. And so, I don't know, for me, that was like, that was the emotional key that I needed to stop mm-hmm. thinking about Annis as, and all, really all of the enslaved people that I write about, to stop thinking about them as tight, as t- archetypes and begin thinking about them as like real people who struggled right. with the same things that we all struggle with. Um, I, I don't even know if, I'm sorry if that didn't answer your question, but. No, it does. It, it really does? does. Okay. Um, it does. Yeah. And then my other question of sort of about how you write, and this is the t- total opposite end, mm-hmm. I think, of the spectrum, is like, I always describe your sentences as very lush. I feel like you write lush sentences. And I'm wondering how you think about sentences. Yes. Because I know that you do. I, when I read your words, I'm like, this is thoughtful. This isn't just like, <laughs> this isn't just like she went to the store. Mm-hmm. Like if she's going to the store, it is going to be the best <laughs> sentence. There's going to be four sentences about her going to the store that make you feel like not only are you in the store, but you know exactly what store <laughs> and the, 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 the ground, the linoleum tile feels a really certain way. And like, so I'm wondering how you, how you think about sentences. I know like I, when I talked to Kiese years ago, he said that he has a refrigerator for his sentences where he'll like write a sentence like, oh, that's a good sentence. I'm going to put it away and use it later, ah. um, which I thought was really it had never occurred to me because I don't write. I just read. So I only really think about writing as far as like the finished product. But because your sentences are so fantastic, how are you thinking about them? OK, so you know, of course, right? Like I was a reader before I was a writer, right? Right. And so when I was a kid, you know, like what brought me to reading was just that experience of immersing myself in another world I loved, right? Wasn't paying much attention to language, I don't think. But then once I got a little older, you know, high school, definitely, by the time I was in high school, I began to find that I liked figurative language. Like I, I love simile. I love metaphor. I love, um, I love language that is lush. I, I, I love poetry, right? And I love po- like poetic prose. Um, mm. And when I begin to attempt to write, um, you know, I was a bad poet before I. <laughs> began to before I ever wrote any prose at all like I was a I was a pretty I was a very you know in love with poetry um and wrote Mm -hmm. bad poem after bad poem um but but you know but I was like expressing but like really exploring my love for language right through that and so when I began writing prose 
you know, I wanted simile. I wanted metaphor. I wanted, mm. you know, figurative language. I wanted really beautiful uh, imagery. I, I um, realized that I was paying attention to the rhythm of the line, right? In the same way that mm-hmm. you have to pay attention to the rhythm of the line in poetry, right? Like I was going through sentence by sentence and sometimes repe- reading them to myself out, out loud, you know, or saying them to myself as I'm out loud, as I'm composing in order so I could like hear my way towards like what the sentence wanted to be. Um, mm-hmm. And and even though that was not in fashion when I was, you know, in my, went to my, like when I was in school and studying writing and in my 50 million writing workshops where, where then the, the, uh, what was accepted and I think pushed as like good prose writing was very lean, very clean, not a lot of metaphor, not a lot of simile, you know, no, Mm. no adverbs at all. Right. Like just very (laughs) like spare, straightforward, writing but that wasn't me and so I so I continued to write you know towards what I found beautiful and I just I tried to do it as well as I could right and I just Mm -hmm. sometimes I failed but I just kept trying and trying and trying and trying um as I evolved as a writer and so yeah so even now like I still I'm always thinking about the line and about and in a way, sometimes when I'm even when I'm writing the first draft, you know, it feels like I am constructing the book line by line by line, because Mm. that is the way that I'm approaching it. Now, I don't there's no I don't have a refrigerator for my sentences, (laughs) uh, like he say. But, you know, for me, it's really about sort of immersing myself into the story with that character and opening myself up to them in the moment and hearing them, right? But at the same time Mm -hmm. I'm hearing them, it's almost as if I have two conscious, like two consciousnesses, right? So I have this part of myself that is there submerged in the story with the character in the moment that is hearing them say these things. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I have this other consciousness that is aware of the line, like aware of the words and the rhythm and, you know, and the imagery and, um, you know, all the things that you have to be aware of, I think, when you're, you know, when you're constructing language. And so I'm sort of working from those, in those two awarenesses, uh, I'm holding both of them and working from them um, at the same time. Does that answer your question? Is it? Yeah. 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 I mean, there isn't a real answer. It's just what works for you, how you (laughs) do it. Like, you know, I I feel like that's, if I've learned anything from the show, it's like, there's so many different answers. And this next question is one of my favorites. And this Mm -hmm. one gets the most different answers, Mm -hmm. which is, how do you like to write? Where are you? How many hours a day? Is there music or no? Are there snacks and beverages, candles, (laughs) rituals? Like, set the scene. Yeah. So... I do like candles. I'm a sucker for a candle. Um, I, I don't like a particular brand or anything. I just like them. Um, and so sometimes I, I don't know, there's something about having fire near you when mm. you're writing that is 
very soothing to me. Um, and I don't know, I guess it enables me to create a little ritual around writing. Yeah. Um, I also, I drink a lot of tea. Um, Ooh, what kind? I, so I love, um, it, I love English breakfast, breakfast tea. I also love yes. chai. Um, okay, so well, you're speaking my language. <laughs> I drink a lot of tea. Do you do milk and sugar? I do do milk and sugar. Yes. Um, I, I love I, this for us. I am sorry. <laughs> I, I, and, I, and, I, and I, so for the fa- past, I don't know, probably like 10 years, I've been stuck on Fortnum and Mason tea. I feel very bougie, but I like order it. Uh, <laughs> Special do order you like, it. Do you know how? What about Harney and Sons? Do you ever do Harney and Sons? I, I have done Harney and Sons Sons before. Okay, I love them too. Yeah. I love Fortnum and Mason. And uh-huh. also there's this Canadian brand that I'm obsessed with called, oh gosh, now I can't think of the name. They're my favorite. They're like very bougie. Really? They're like, you know, it's imported from Canada really? for me. <laughs> um, God, now I can't think of what they're called. Oh, Sloan, Sloan Tea. Oh. And they have some phenomenal black teas. I'm going to, really? I'll send you, Please uh, do. they have this one called, um, oh God, I can't, uh, Royal, no, something palace, something, uh-huh. I don't know, something really fancy. <laughs> and it's like, it's like English breakfast meets like an Earl gray, but it has like Ooh. almost like a minty sweet undertone. I, I can't even explain it. I had it once in New York at a cafe and uh-huh. then I hunted down the cafe like tried to order online to see if it would tell me the brand like did this right. whole thing and I finally found it it's called heavenly cream that's what it's called heavenly cream. okay I, we're, I'm sending you some tea I'm gonna please send you do. some tea please do I, I will I will <laughs> anyway sorry I just get so excited when people drink tea and not coffee because no, everyone I love drinks coffee it. I mean I do drink love coffee tea. but I try to limit it because because I, because I feel like it's something that I should only drink when I really need it, you know, like, so when I'm on book mm. tour, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to drink coffee. all the coffee. Right. Um, <laughs> but when I'm home and, you know, I, 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 I love tea. So yeah, so I'll drink tea and, um, and I, I normally work from home, but here's why, because I, I actually, I can't write with music. It's easier okay. for me to write when I am in a quiet place because I have to mm-hmm. hear the line. Like I have to hear right. the right. words. Right. I have to hear the sentences. I have to hear the the paragraphs, like the be aware of the, I have to be able to hear and, and recite and like be aware of the rhythm of the paragraphs. Um, and so I, I need quiet. So I don't work with the music. Um, and I just, you know, sit in my quiet room with my tea and sometimes with fire. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, and I write, I, and and here's the other thing that I know this differs, you know, with according to the writer too. But I I try not to read literary fiction when I am writing right. fiction, right? But I'll read poetry. I'll read uh, nonfiction, straight nonfiction, um, you know, creative nonfiction. When I say straight for nonfiction, I mean like you know history and stuff and yeah, 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 you know, stuff like that. Um, but I I read that, and I I will also read. I'm always reading, uh, you know, like romance and YA and sci-fi and you know like I love that stuff um horror I've tried to read a few horror novels um but yeah so I like you know I read in other genres outside of the genre that I'm writing in um because I'm afraid of undue influence right like I'm afraid of like reading someone's work and like liking it so much that it finds its way into my work like their prose um yeah so so I'll read everything else, but I won't read 
literary fiction mm. when I am writing do you, literary fiction. Do you enjoy reading literary fiction when you're not writing it? I do. I do. I lo- <laughs> like, I love, um, I love like Lauren Groff's work. I love, mm-hmm. um, I teach like Brian Washington's work. I really love his uh, work. Um, love. yeah, I, I, um, you know, my friend Christian Kiefer, like I love his work. Um, there was a book that I, for a brief moment, I had a, I, uh, did a book club with literati. Um, mm-hmm. and so there was this, this book that I had, um, you know, the, the folks in my book club read by a writer named Chanel Benz, I think, um, gosh, called the gone dead. I think that's what it's, I think that's uh-huh. the title of it. Um, and I loved her work. I mean, it's the only, it's the only book that I've read by her, but yeah, I do. I love literary fiction, you know, because it's often it's like, you know, that as writers, they are doing the things that I love about, you know, about fiction, yeah. right? As far as like the yeah. prose and I don't know. So yeah, I love literary fiction. Yeah. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, let me think. Mm. Or are you a really good speller? Oh, I'm not. I'm, I am not. I am not a good okay. speller. Um, <laughs> I probably, I can't think of a particular word, but I struggle with I-E or E-I, you know? So okay. I'm like every, every word. Or yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm always misspelling receive every time I yeah. I, I, I write it. Uh, yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's okay. funny is I think I read, you know, when I was a kid, I, I read children's books that were written by British writers. And I think that mm-hmm. sometimes I, as a kid, th- mm. that I read the British versions of the books, which, which had the British spelling. Um, and so I think that that has hampered me, <laughs> you know, as, as, as an adult and as a writer. <laughs> yeah, like because, adding a U to yeah, color. Or there's whatever. a little fuzziness, yeah. I think, uh, Interesting. sometimes when I'm spelling. Um, So when we're talking right now, it's September. This book has not come out yet, Let Us Descend. Mm -hmm. But your last two fiction books were National Book Award winners. And you are like such a celebrated writer. I know so many people, myself included, who look to you as sort of like one of our greatest living novelists and one of our greatest living writers. And I guess this question is really like about the humanity and you is like, what does it feel like putting out a new book knowing that there is like anticipation and pressure for you is that is it harder for you as you're writing is it harder for you as you're preparing for this is it is there some sort of responsibility like I I just think about like I know me it would make I would be paralyzed by that sort of stuff and so I'm and, and sometimes I talk to writers and they tell me like I don't think about it it doesn't affect me whatever so I'm just curious for you because I mean, not only are you one of our great American writers, but you're also one of our great black women writers, you know, and like that is meaningful, I think, for so many for for me and so many other black women readers. Like, Mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering how that pressure, if at all, sits with you, if it fuels you, if it terrifies you, like Mm -hmm. any and all of that kind of stuff. I think that it. I think that it does terrify me in many ways. Um. So after Salvage the Bones won the National Book Award, I 
So Nikki Finney was the poet who won that year for Head Off and Split, right? Beautiful collection. And um, Nick, so Nikki Smith and, and her family sort of adopted me at the National Book Awards mm. because I mm. was so sure that I would lose that no one from my family was there. I didn't even ask anybody <laughs> to come, right? Because I was like, I don't want to ask y'all to take off yeah. work to come up here to watch me lose. Um, right. So my my local my bookseller, who was also my friend, my lo- local bookseller, who was also my friend, he was there um, as a surprise. Like the publishers in, uh, invited him. My publisher invited him, Bloomsbury. Um, so it was like a surprise that he was there, but like that was it, you know? Um, so anyhow... Uh, after we, you know, so that's part of the reason that, you know, that I think Nikki and her mom and dad were like so nice to me because I was, <laughs> I was like, you know, this just this child who was sort of alone in that situation. So they were like, you can, and we, we were, and I was sitting like right next to her table too. Like my table was next to her table. We were, mm-hmm. we're all the way in the back, right. Of the, of this huge, like beautiful hall. And so I think, you know, she was like, oh, we have to adopt her. Um, so anyhow, so after Salvage of Bones won the National Book Award and after Nikki Finney won for Head Off and Split, I went to AD, AWP like that in the spring afterwards. Yeah. And, and Nikki was there too. And we ran into each other and, and we were, and we had a conversation and we were talking and she said, so how is, how has your writing been? And I had, I was struggling. I couldn't get anything mm-hmm. down on the page. And I think that part of the reason that I couldn't was because suddenly, right? Like there was this expectation of audience, like of having right. an audience. And there was on my part, like I was wondering like, okay, so now, like, what do people, like, first of all, people will actually read my work now, more people than, yeah. you know, and, and what, what will they want? Will they want more of what I gave them and salvage the bones? What will, I, and so I was, I think I was paralyzed uh, mm. because I was thinking about audience and like the audience expectations. Um, and so I, and I told Nikki that, and she said, she was like, she asked me, she said, so what was the emotion that drew you to writing? Like, what did you feel before all this when you sat down and it was just you and the work? What did you feel? And mm-hmm. and, 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 and I, I don't think my answer to her was articulate at, at all, right? <laughs> but I think that what I tried to communicate to her was that was that it was really like, love, you know, like for the people I was writing about and for the place that I was writing about and and also a, a sense of responsibility and like in a fire, I think, like a mm-hmm. like a feeling of like of wanting to push back against all the stories that the world told about us, right? Mm-hmm. Um I, of wanting to push back against that and 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 make way for new stories, right? And mm-hmm. she said she said hold that now remember that, mm. you know, and bring that the next time that you sit down to write, remember that and hold that close to you and just let uh. that be and write from that place again, right? And mm-hmm. I took her advice and it worked. And so since then, <laughs> I like the NBA, the National Book Awards that I've won, any awards that I win. I just bring them to my mom's house, right? So my mom has mm. has them all in her like <laughs> living room and in the room that I've stayed in in her in her house that I you know 
one of the rooms that I grew up in that I share with my sister. And like, she has them throughout her house. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps me. Like I always ask and she doesn't care, you know, she thinks it's great. Right. Um, but I, I just bring everything to her because in my space, you know, like I even hide my books from myself. Like all my books, they're behind <laughs> those paintings that I have propped up against the bookshelf over here. They're like hidden behind the paintings. Oh my God. Um, because I think doing all of that helps me to forget about audience, at least when I'm writing the rough draft right. of the work, right? right. Um, so that I can like, you know, sort of, so that I can better cope, I think, with that like, fear that I have around whether or not I'm like failing, you know, or or disappointing my audience, um, like disappointing, like their expectations uh, about the work. And and so in a way, it's like easier to get away from that when I'm writing the rough draft. It's easier to, to cope, right? And to try to forget, right? To pretend at forgetting. That's, it's easier to do that then than it is now at this this point, mm. right? Because at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the pub date is set. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm already doing, um, you know, interviews and pre-publicity stuff mm. uh, or publicity stuff, you know, before pre-publications um, stuff. And so I will admit that it's it's getting harder to sort of block it out and not think about it um, because right. I think that there is like this little worry you know it's a little niggling voice in the back of my head that's like what about this and have you thought about this and what do you think these people are gonna think and who is you know what are they gonna think and so right but but I and I just (laughs) I actually I told Kathy this the other day but I I I I I talk to myself all the time which you have probably gotten in the Mm -hmm. course of this conversation um uh, so I, so I actually had to give myself a stern talking to when I was in the car by myself the other day, because I realized, like, I was like very aware all of a sudden as I'm like riding along in the car by, well, by myself that I'm like, wait, you're like, you're sort of obsessing over the reception of this book, right? Like the fear is building inside of you and you're really worried about like what people are going to think. And, and so I, yeah, I had to give myself a stern talking to. And I was like, look, mm-hmm. you've done everything that you can do, right? At mm-hmm. this point, you have put in all of the work. You've done mm-hmm. everything that you can do. And now it's out of your hands, right? I mean, yeah. the book is being printed. There is nothing more that I can do to the story right now. And so it is what it is. And I just have <laughs> to understand that and know that and understand that people are going to perceive the book the way that they perceive it, right? And that's just something that I have to accept and I have Mm -hmm. to stop, let it like making me anxious and making me worry. Mm -hmm. And um, I just have to let it be whatever it is. I mean, I hope that people love it. I hope that it resonates really strongly with people. I hope it makes people feel and fall in love and changes them and, you know, and you know, inspires empathy and all of those things. Uh, But, and hopefully I've done the work so that that is what happens. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, I just have to keep reminding myself of that. But yeah, it is, it's not, I wish I could be like, oh, I just don't think about it. And, you know, it's like (laughs) water off a duck's back, but it's not that case at all for me. Mm -mm. 
Okay. I just have two quick last questions. One Mm -hmm. is for people who love Let Us Descend. Mm -hmm. What are some other books you might recommend to them that are in conversation with your work? Oh, um, definitely Underground Railroad, Colson Whitehead. Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. probably Ta-Nehisi Coates with The Water Dancer. I mean, I was thinking a lot about those books when I was working on Let Us Descend. I think um, because I was in the middle of like writing a book about an enslaved person and I was like, whoa, there are a right. lot of people right now, you know, like con- uh, my contemporaries, you know, like contemporary Black writers, Black American writers who are writing about enslaved people. And, uh, but you know, ta I interviewed him when The Water Dancer came out. And one of the things that he told me then was he was like, you know, like there were so many enslaved people, you know, there were millions of enslaved people. He was like, so really there are millions of stories to tell about right. enslaved people. Um, so yeah. he like, like assuaged, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that word, but he like lessened, you know, my anxiety and yeah. helped me manage my anxiety about around writing a book like this Um but I think Let Us Descend it is in conversation, um, is in conversation with both yeah. of those books. Yeah, for sure. And then last one, if you could have any person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? Um, this is so presumptuous of me, um, but it's, an, it's my honest answer. Toni Morrison. Mm, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Jasmine, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you. I feel considerably less nervous. I think we did it. (laughs) Thank you so much, everyone. As you're listening to this episode, thank you. The book is out in the world now. As you're listening to this, you can get it anywhere you get your books. Do get it. Do read it. It is so good. I, I, it's like hard to express the kinds of feelings, but I think what I said when I reviewed the book was like, it's one of those books where you're reading and all of a sudden you're crying and you're like, well, how did this happen? Like you just like get overwhelmed by emotion. It's just, uh, so thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that's it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Jasmine Ward for coming on the podcast. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Kate Boyd for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, this month's book club pick is Severance by Ling Ma, and we will be discussing the book on Wednesday, November 29th with Mitchell Jackson. If you like the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Please take a moment to make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website at thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>